Hello, Shiver Seekers. Are you ready to follow us into the unknown? I'm Cynthia. And I'm Stephanie. And you have found the dark oak. Today, we discuss conservationalist Diane Fossey, her relationships with both man and animal, and the dark path that led to her ultimate murder. Ooh. Welcome to The Dark Oak, the mystery podcast with purpose. Each month through the Branch of Hope Fund, we give a portion of earnings from our Patreon and sponsors to a nonprofit organization of your choosing. To find out how you can be a part of the movement, head over to thedarkoak.com or stay with us until the end of the episode and we'll give you all the deets. Stephanie, I'm so excited to talk to you today about Diane Fossey because I have loved Diane Fossey and her mountain gorillas since I was a child. It's so idealistic. I mean, not the ending, obviously, but I I feel like every girl that loves animals, this is, I mean, a fantasy. It's a total fantasy. And I don't know about you, but like gorillas are my favorite animal in general. So I extra, extra love her story. Yeah, maybe. In the end, I think gorillas and monkeys are far too closely related to humans. So they might be my least favorite animal. (laughs) (laughs) Is that bad to say? No, I mean, I get it. But see, that's why I love them. No, I totally get it. Because I think we as humans kind of not to get too philosophical, but we put ourselves on these pedestals as like we are, you know, the the end all be all. Right. And in reality, we're really apes that aren't that hairy. You know, no, I, I, I get it. I, I get it. Here's the, I love what Diane Fossey did. I don't know that anybody can argue with the steps she made towards conservationalism. And I know the exact moment that this passion for me was sparked. Actually, it's one of those really vivid childhood memories that for some reason just has stuck with me for all these years. I was on a family vacation as a child. And I don't know exactly what year it was, but I do know it had to be sometime after 1988 because that's when the movie Gorillas in the Mist came out with Sigourney Weaver. I remember a long day of driving and I couldn't tell you where we were going or where we had been, but I can tell you what the hotel room looked like. We were winding down for the evening, flipping through the TV stations to find something interesting to watch when we landed on a movie with some adorable baby gorillas. (laughs) They are really cute. They are really cute. I'll totally give them that. (laughs) So cute, right? And the silverbacks. The silverbacks, the daddy gorillas, silverback daddy gorillas, and the tiny baby gorillas are just, I mean, off the charts cute. It's perfection. I love it. So we left this movie playing in the background as we began to unwind from our long day of traveling. Somewhere between getting our showers and brushing our teeth We must have missed the part of the movie showing that these gorillas, who I was immediately invested in, were being poached. The worst. Really, if you have not seen this movie, uh, that's really... Weren't there, like, scenes of, like, their hands being cut off Oh, girl. Oh, girl. Yeah, it's bad. Okay. It's bad. You're right. So I just happened to exit the bathroom. Just in time for my. Oh, you were little. I was little. I was little. I was born in '82, y'all. So probably ten or under. Yeah. As soon as I exited the bathroom, I looked at the TV, and there was a close-up of Digit, who was the most lovable and human-like of all of the gorillas. Diane Fossey's favorite. Of course, it was. of course. And he was sitting up against a tree, 
decapitated with his hands cut off. The poachers had killed him and they were going to use his hands for ashtrays. And that moment, even though it was just a movie, that moment was just one of those moments where I was like, trauma. (laughs) I'm still talking to my therapist about it 30 years. It would have been for me. I'll tell you that. Yes. So I'm pretty sure that moment both scarred me for life and ignited a passion in me that would last a lifetime. So for years after that, when we would go to Blockbuster Video, do you remember Blockbuster Video? <laughs> I, re- you know what I remember most about Blockbuster is the smell. Yes, there was a smell. Yeah, there very was a distinct smell. smell. Now, for those of you who don't know what Blockbuster Video is, you used to have to go to a <laughs> store and rent what was called a VH a VHS tape of your favorite movie. You could keep it for a couple days, and then you had to rewind it manually. <laughs> Be kind. Rewind. You kind of rewind. Have you seen, you know, Netflix came out with a documentary about Blockbuster. I've seen it. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it was nostalgic. Yeah. I have great memories of Blockbuster just because back in the day, that's like what you did. We're going to go to Blockbuster and you can pick out any movie yeah, every weekend. you want. Yeah. yeah. And it was just so much I remember fun, arguing so with my mom because, you know, it was always the like, I got to pick a movie and my brother got to pick a movie. But of course, we would always argue to get another movie. Of course. And then eventually there was a compromise where we could each get our own and a group one but we had to make the decision together and then we could never decide. It was a lot of drama. A lot of drama. And then the worst was when you wanted a movie. And, you know, again, these are physical copies. So for like a hot new release, they may have like 50 copies. But yes. you'd go and they'd be out. And you'd, you couldn't take home that, that movie because it, they were it, all rented. And there'd be nothing. Nothing. Yes. Man, you guys just don't know devastation <laughs> until you've experienced that. It's true. Kids just have it too easy these days. Too easy these days. (laughs) But here's what I know about my blockbuster trips. I would always want to rent Gorillas in the Mist. Do you really? Always. I actually love that you wanted to go back and rent it again. Because, you know, I mean, we've talked about it. Cynthia has some very interesting phobias. But Mm -hmm. that didn't become like something you never wanted to see again. That was something you were like, no, I need to figure out more about how this happened and how Diane... Bossy tried to help them? Yes, I loved her story. There's a part of me that loves the morbid. Okay. And so, you know, even that part, it was awful and it made me feel sick. But yet sometimes I'm drawn to that because I need to know like the psychology behind it's weird. Well, no, I actually get that, but I get that more for human interaction. I can't handle someone like hurting an animal. I know that's backwards, but it's harder for me on the animal realm or children because I just feel like anything that can't communicate all the way, you know, that is helpless, that is helpless. Exactly. It deserves even more protection. And I get particularly hot like when something bad happens to them. Anyway, I feel like that would have turned me off about watching it, but it's interesting. It is. Yeah. I've wondered the same thing. I've been like, why was I drawn to this? Because it made me feel literally sick to my stomach every time I would watch it. But yet I was so drawn to it. Yeah, it, that is a very valid question. And also, it's interesting that you say that you can't handle harm being done to animals because they've actually done studies that have shown that humans will tolerate abuse to other humans. They will not tolerate abuse to animals. I don't get that. I do feel like it should be a little... Well, first of all, abuse of anything is horrible. Sure. I don't like any of it. We're not condoning any of it. We don't like any of it. Right. But we're just talking about weird psychological reactions right. to abuse yes. of different creatures. And in general, humans have a stronger reaction, negative reaction to abuse and hurting an animal than a human. Yeah. It, it's very bizarre, but it uh, is very bizarre. Yeah. A little bit of science there for you. 
little psychology class. <laughs> You're keeping us in the nose. Okay. <laughs> Just doing my job. <laughs> you and Diane educating <laughs> educating the masses. That's right. We're like besties, Diane and I. <laughs> well, this movie, Gorillas in the Mist, was based on a book written by Diane Fossey. And it is, again, uh, I read the book, of course, and it's amazing as well. And it's the true story of how Diane left her home and moved to the mountains of Africa to save these endangered gorillas. And she ultimately paid for it with her life. Now, before Diane Fossey came along, gorillas had a pretty bad rap. They were made out to be violent beasts that would kill any human in sight. Think King Kong or even more recently, like the movie Congo. Yeah. Gorillas were considered monsters. Donkey Kong. (laughs) See? I mean, what's scarier than Donkey Kong? Accurate. Born in San Francisco on January 16th, 1932, Diane Fossey came from a world far removed from the dense jungles of East Africa. Diane's love of animals began in childhood with her pet goldfish. Diane would have loved to have had more pets, but her parents would not allow it. And even after her goldfish died, they did not let her get another one. Isn't that interesting? Who are these parents? I don't know. I clearly live my life a different way. <laughs> if y'all saw <laughs> Stephanie's farm, you would know she, her kids could bring home pretty much any a- animal and be like, can we keep it? Okay. We're working on rescuing a sulcata tortoise right now. See? I'm pretty excited. <laughs> <laughs> don't even know what that is, but have a feeling I'm going to be friends with it. You will. <laughs> Adorable. I love it. Diane's Parents went so far as to not allow her to take in a pet hamster that her classmate offered her. I guess her classmate couldn't keep this hamster anymore. She brought it in and her parents would not let Diane have it. So it was a very strict. No wonder no she animal. got into animals. She was like, screw you guys. And- well, Diane got around her parents' rules of no pets. She overcompensated. <laughs> she overcompensated. She decided, you know what? I'm going to participate in equestrianism. Oh, I didn't know that part about her. And that is an animal that you don't have any of. And I think you should get to work on that. I think you need a horse. Didn't grow up around horses. I'll be honest. I'm a little terrified of horses. We're going to start with ponies and donkeys. Maybe they're like a gateway to horses. Oh, I totally think they are a gateway (laughs) to horses for sure. I asked Santa for a donkey for Christmas and well, he didn't come, but there's still time. There is still time. If anybody knows of any donkeys that need rescuing, he will be well loved. I promise you. Well, Diane received her first horseback riding lesson when she was only six years old. And by the time she was a teenager, she was advanced enough to merit an invitation to join the riding team at Lowell High School in San Francisco. Look at her. I know. She earned several awards and decided to pursue a career in animal husbandry at the University of California. Love it. She then shifted her career aspirations to occupational therapy, but she moved to Kentucky so she could be closer to farm life. Yeah. Isn't that cool? I love this lady. I know. I just love her. Diane Fossey first traveled to Africa in 1963 when she was 31 years old. She collected her life savings, which at the time was about $8,000, and she took out a three-year bank loan to afford a seven-week trip through the wilderness of Kenya, Tanzania, Congo and Zimbabwe. She go by herself? Yes. That is so brave. I, oh, this girl, fearless. Fear, like when I think of no fear, Diane Fossey, she's fearless. Yes. While she was in Africa, she met renowned paleoanthropologist Louis Leakey. 
and he specialized in studying the fossils of our ancestors, but felt that in order to really understand humans, he would have to understand our closest relatives, the apes. Okay. Now, Leakey had already helped another female researcher. You may recognize her name, Jane Goodall. Oh, another fave. <laughs> yes. She studied chimpanzees. So he felt it was time to find someone to do something similar for the mountain gorillas. So three years after meeting her, Leakey hired Diane to study the mountain gorillas in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Who? I mean, all this is a little terrifying. And it in is, this time frame. Exactly. Exactly. It, I mean, again, you know, that would be scary now. This was the 60s. No, you've got to have a lot of passion and, and conviction in what you're doing. Absolutely. Just wait, because it gets, I mean, it gets hairy. Leaky. <laughs> no, no pun intended. Oh, goodness. <laughs> be here all week, folks. <laughs> hairy. <laughs> this story's bananas. Oh. <laughs> Actually, Stephanie, they like bamboo, okay? <laughs> right. Cynthia's now a gorilla expert. <laughs> I told you. We're like best friends. I read her book, okay? Stop monkeying around and tell us the story. <laughs> They're not even monkeys, okay? All right. See, ba- back to business. <laughs> Leaky told Diane that before she could take this position, she would need to remove her appendix as a health precaution. That's pretty interesting, right? Because, you know, it's, you know, a different lifestyle over there in the Congo. I just, like, sat up straight in my chair. She really did. She had a very visceral reaction. Uh, remove her appendix. Like, what? what? Oh, like, you know, just because, you know, if your appendix burst in the Congo, that would be really bad. So just get it taken out so we don't have to worry about that. Oh, my god! Right? Okay. Well, but listen to this. But you might need it to, you know, filter out some disease or something, right? <laughs> also true. Oh, Well, Leakey wrote Diane six weeks later to say the surgery actually was not necessary. He just wanted to make sure she was really committed. But by the time he did this, Diane was already appendixless. Stop playing with my emotions. This is crazy. (laughs) I mean, right? Oh, my. Okay. Let me just schedule that appendix. I've heard people, I, I have had some very close friends visit very deep inner workings of of africa and they did i mean they did the the malaria shots and the i can't remember what the other one was but i mean pretty heavy hitting vaccinations and they make you feel very sick i can't and also and also remove your appendix right but she didn't need to that's what was so funny to me is like he was just really trying to test her but she did it how do you trust him after this like, oh, I, I got, I got you, Diane. Here's the thing that we're gonna learn about Diane. She really doesn't trust humans. Okay. Well, this didn't help. This, this was probably what began that journey, but this did not help. <laughs> Goodness gracious! Right? Haha. <laughs> Just kidding. Too late. Too late. Well, the Congo was not a safe place for gorillas or humans at this time, due to a lot of conflict in the country. And soon after getting to Africa, Diane was ultimately forced to leave, but not before being captured by rebel soldiers at her base camp in 1967. And she's like, let me go. I don't have an appendix. (laughs) You've taken everything from me. (laughs) All joking aside, this is terrifying. It's terrifying. That's what I'm telling you. Like, I've never heard of a braver woman. She kind of reminds me of Amelia Earhart. 
who we covered yeah, a, a couple weeks ago, just like, I I know the risks, but I'm going for it. This is what brings meaning to me in my life. Yeah, Barton and I discussed more about Amelia Earhart because, again, I just think she's, what an amazing person. But also, I mean, you have to admit, when you're a pioneer in any field, you have to be a little nutty. Absolutely. Like, when you're an ex- explorer, an adventurer, you've got to kind of live on the edge of what is possible and what is realistic and yeah you always walk the line absolutely but it makes you a little nutty but also inspirational uh, that was the word i was gonna say inspirational i have the nutty part down i'm still <laughs> looking waiting for, for the inspiration, inspiration but um i'm halfway there <laughs> well after being captured by these rebel soldiers diane spent two weeks in military detainment but she was able to bribe her way out with promises of cash and her Land Rover. Whoa. Right? The guards agreed to drive her to Uganda. And shortly after they arrived, she had them arrested. Good for her. Very good for her. But also, she just got to Africa and she's not making friends. Okay, so this is kind of like stirring up the hornet's nest. I mean, I didn't read anything that say that this ties into what ultimately happens to her, but we are going to find out a lot of humans did not like her. And these are just the first set that I came across. The first set of humans that probably are not Diane Fossey fans. You know, what reminds me of a little bit is the the Sauter family case that we just went over to. It's just this idea of kind of these like rebel extortionists. Yes. You know, I mean, it's a different situation. It was, you know, the Italian mafia possibly possibly you know and in, in the solder family situation probably <laughs> mm-hmm. and the solder family situation and then this one it's just a different kind of of thug yeah just bullies bullies just bullies you know that kind of just wanted to get what they wanted and when you stand up to them there are repercussions yeah. they don't know how to handle that yeah it's very it's very scary very scary except For Diane, this really didn't scare her at all. Okay. And shortly after being released by these thugs, she was ready to get back to work. Like, come on, guys. You guys have slowed me down for a whole two weeks here. So I need to get to my gorillas. That's right. And despite warnings from the U.S. Embassy, she ended up setting up a small research outpost in Rwanda and called it the Karasoki Research Center. And this center was really just a few rustic cabins that sat high in the volcanic Virunga Mountains. Okay, that sounds very romantic. I'm sure it was laid in with mosquitoes. I'm sure it was. <laughs> it sounds romantic, but I'm like, I would not want to stay overnight there. Okay, so Ellen DeGeneres also really loves um, gorillas. And oh, one of the things okay. that her wife Portia did for her, this was years ago now, was actually funded like a, a research center in Africa in Ellen's name and staffed it and everything. And of course, Ellen and Portia went to visit. Yeah. After it had been set up and Ellen was like, I romanticized it. I thought it was going to be like so fun. Like here I have my cute little matching, you know, explorer outfit and all (laughs) this. She said within just the first few minutes trying to just hike to where the gorillas were going to be. She was freezing. She was soaked to the bone. She was dirty. It was disgusting. This is hard work. So, you know, again, all that to say, it sounds really romantic, but let me tell you. <laughs> no, this is hard work. This is hard work. Yeah. This is not for the faint of heart. Yeah. And and this is, I mean, a camp, like a satellite camp. This isn't like it's a whole encampment, like houses and bunks and outhouses. I no, mean, these is, are like thatched, yes. hut type right. buildings. Drafty. Very. <laughs> 
So how does a woman get close to wild gorillas that no one has ever gotten close to before? Because again, remember at this point, these are these are like man killing beasts in most people's minds. Well, I think if it's anything like Jane Goodall, would you just go live with them, she, right? And she did. She, uh, Diane told the BBC, quote, I am an inhibited persona and I felt that the gorillas were somewhat inhibited as well. So I imitated their natural, normal behavior like feeding, munching on celery stalks, or scratching myself, end quote. So when she was around the gorillas, she would walk on her knuckles. She would mimic beating on her chest like the gorillas did. She would make these belch-like calls, and it worked. Okay. This process is called habituation, and it's where you literally just become part of the habitat. You blend in as part of the habitat. Well, the crazy thing about this habituation process is over time, the gorillas were not at all bothered by Diane's presence. I mean, that's amazing. These are wild animals that have never seen humans. Yeah. She was able to go sit with them for hours, studying them and getting to know them actually on like a personal level. Yeah, and it's really amazing. It's so cool. Again, the word inspirational. It is. She learned. She's got goosebumps. I, I mean, know. it's so cool to think about just it, among these creatures that could kill you in three seconds if they wanted to. Could. Yeah. We will learn it's not their nature, but they could. They definitely have the strength yeah, and the they size. they could. Absolutely. She was able to learn like which gorilla belonged to which family. And she especially enjoyed learning what the silverback, you mentioned the silverback earlier, but the silverback male in each family, like what their role was. Yes. She learned to tell individual gorillas apart by the lines on their nose. Because did you know this, that gorillas noses are like human fingerprints and no two are the same as far as like the wrinkles and the lines go. Cool. Isn't that cool? So she would keep a sketchbook. And she would sketch their noses. And that's how she was able to distinguish them. Now, adult male gorillas develop a silver streak down their backs as they get older. And that is, of course, how they get their name, Silverback. And it is most often the patriarch who's the leader of each gorilla family. And I just thought that was really cool because they really are families. Like you, they are lifelong family. You know, they live in these family groups. and. Much like humans, you know, there's a patriarch. And then when that patriarch passes on or gets, you know, too old or something, a a younger male will step up and become the patriarch. It's really so cool. I just think it's so cool. Yeah, it is neat. Now, despite her wisdom and habituation, getting to know these animals on such an intimate level was a slow process. Diane sat with these gorillas for years, but eventually the relationship between ape and human almost turned into friendship. A man named Ian Redman, who was a friend of Diane's and worked very closely with her for over three years, said that the gorillas were as interested in the humans as the humans were in the gorillas. He said that they'd be sitting, just, you know, observing, and the gorillas would actually come over to Diane and to Ian and with their hands, pull their mouths open, pull the humans' mouths open, pull their lips down, and look at their teeth. Okay. Ian said he believed that these great apes were very curious about this, quote, gorilla-like animal that does such different things. Yeah, I could see that. I just thought that was so cute how we're looking at them like they're so different, yet they're the the same as us, and they're looking at us like they're so different, but they're so the same. Well, you could turn around that sentence, you know, these gorilla-like animals that weren't gorillas. It's like these human-like 
animals that aren't humans. Yes, it really. I mean, it's so cool. Now, because of her years, you know, and her reputation working with these animals, she got a little nickname from the locals living around her. It was a Swahili name that roughly translated to the woman who lives alone on the mountain. Oh my gosh, it's so much like Amelia Earhart. I know. Like that quote from her in the yearbook about the, the the girl in brown who, who walks, walks alone. alone. Whoa. I know. When I was researching this, I was literally like, this reminds me, so, it's like a sister. Yeah. Good almost. Like different scenario, but it reminds me so much of Amelia Earhart. Wild. Mm-hmm. Now in 1970, only three years after starting this work, Diane Fossey appeared on the cover of National Ge- Geographic magazine. And in her magazine interview, she told reporters that she'd spent more than 2,000 hours directly observing the gorillas. And during that time, she could account for less than five minutes of what could be called aggressive behavior. What was it? Did she say what the aggression was? No. But it was very small. Over 2,000 hours, there was five minutes. I, I do believe the aggression, if I remember correctly... It's been a while since I read the book, but I, it, it was more like probably male, like territorial issues between like males. So it certainly wasn't aggression towards her, but no, a, never aggression. A, a, a gorilla her. against another mm-hmm. gorilla, mm-hmm. probably in a vie for right. some kind of like power. Right. But role. if you like apply that to humans, I mean, yeah, humans show aggression towards each other all day, every day. Yeah. Even like us nice ones. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's interesting how different it is from the chimpanzees because the chimpanzees actually are kind of violent oh they're very scary they're very scary so it's funny i always thought gorillas were more like that no wow they're so gentle they're so now they will do what they have to do to protect their family okay that's for sure yeah but they are so gentle they're so gentle neat i think that's why i like them is because they're such a dichotomy like they're huge they're terrifying they look scary yeah and they're so sweet cool Diane Fossey really woke the world up to these amazing animals. For the first time ever, gorillas were being captured on film and people were able to actually see for themselves just how sweet and, again, human-like these creatures were. Her efforts caused people to have interest in gorilla conservation on a global level. Now, I wish I could stop here. We learned to love gorillas. Man and animal live in peace and harmony forever. Thanks for listening. But unfortunately, like most of the cases we cover here at the Dark Oak, the story does not end here. What? As I mentioned earlier, not everyone was excited about Diane Fossey and her endeavors. And I think it's pretty fair to say that Diane Fossey was a brave, tough lady. How many people do you know that would move alone to Africa in the middle of a civil war to live on a volcano surrounded by animals that up until that point were considered dangerous killers? As you can imagine, this takes a very special kind of personality, and Diane had that personality. But when it came to humans, companionship and comfort were not Diane's areas of gifting, shall we say? You know, not everybody can be great at everything. That's true. She's great at a lot. (laughs) So, you know, if humans aren't one of them, eh. Oh, well. Oh, well. (laughs) She's she's doing her mission. She is. What she was put on this earth to do. She is. And it was well known that Diane preferred being alone, which, um, same. Yeah. (laughs) It was reported that she was not a very easy person to live or work with and that she could be. Same. (laughs) (laughs) I know. 
she could be incredibly charming one day, but then hostile the next. <laughs> I'm not going to say same, but my yeah, husband might. I'll say it for her. <laughs> same on the other side of our recording pod. Now, this was the 1960s and 70s where a woman with such a strong personality who chose to live alone in the jungles of Africa with great wild apes was not as acceptable to some people as it hopefully would be now. Diane loved being in the trenches, hiking for hours into the jungle, like I mentioned earlier, being covered in mud, wet from head to toe, really becoming one with nature. But unfortunately, over the years, Fosse developed emphysema which caused her to really struggle with shortness of breath. So by the early 1970s, she was not able to spend as much time like actually out with the gorillas as she would have liked. So she shifted her attention to running the research camp. One of the things she had to do in this position was deal with poachers. Poachers were usually native to the area, and this was how they made their living. They would take the head and hands of gorillas and sell them as trinkets. If they could capture a baby gorilla, which would always require killing its parents, right? they could then turn around and sell that baby for what was considered a hefty sum. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, depending on how you look at it, orphaned gorillas who had been stolen from their parents would almost always get sick and die. They never did well without their parents. Ugh, heartbreaking. It's, it's horrible. And obviously, I don't agree with any of this. I mean, obviously, I think this is terrible. However, I do like to think most people probably do the best they can with what they have. And in this scenario, we, you know, we do have to take into consideration we have a country in the middle of civil unrest. Most of these poachers were just doing what they'd been doing for generations. No, I absolutely agree. I don't I don't think most people that are poachers would choose to be poachers if they had other choices. Right. Other options. Yeah. So for many of these people, this was just a way that they could support their family. It was the way they'd been supporting their families for years. Still not okay. Not okay, but people do what they have to do to support their families. Right. Diane was determined to stop the poaching at any cost. She became ruthless and she would capture, some may use the word kidnap, (laughs) anyone she caught poaching. And oftentimes these poachers were just like teenagers. Yeah. She would then interrogate them while wearing scary face masks and pretending to use black magic. The locals believed Diane was a witch, and she ran with this. She really wanted everyone to be afraid of her so that they would hopefully leave her and the gorillas she was trying so hard to protect, you know, leave them alone. Yeah, and even from what you've described, I'm sure at this point she considered the gorillas to be her family. For sure. But I think to her this was so personal. They were like her family members. At this point, she spent going on a decade out there every day, all day, literally in the trenches with these animals. And she's already admitted she doesn't have a lot of human companionship. These are her companions. Right. And the the things that she finds negative about humans, she's not seeing in these animals. Right. So that's an interesting thought, too, that, you know, yeah. the, the things that you don't like about these humans don't exist here. Yeah. Sounds like she did some things that were a little extreme. Um, but again, trying to, in some small way, put myself in her shoes. She really wanted to protect these gorillas at all costs. I believe her heart was in the right place. Right. I think maybe it was a little misguided at times, but I believe her heart was in the right place. Right. Like, for instance, one time Diane caught a poacher and afterwards she wrote a letter to a friend of hers describing what she had done to him. And she said in this letter, quote, 
We stripped him and spread-eagled him and lashed the holy blue sweat out of him with nettle stalks and leaves. End quote. Not going to make a ton of friends doing that. And also, uh, okay, so she's so enthralled with these gorillas that have shown no aggression, yet she is torturing poachers. She may not have been able to see the forest through the trees kind of situation, but again, I, I do agree with you. I think it came out of a good place, but I think some messed steps are being made. That was extreme. Extreme. I mean, yes. You know, you are hurting a, another. Yes. Being now. Yes, that's right. So extreme for sure. There are some reports that she may have kidnapped poachers children and held them for ransom in an effort to scare people away from the gorillas that she loved. Yikes. I hope that's not true. I hope that is genuinely just a rumor. But yikes. <laughs> Scary, right? Yeah. Right. Diane's friend, Kelly Stewart, who is a fellow primatologist, said that when she first got there, meaning to the research center, Anne was mercurial, but was already angry. She was in warrior mode and fighting mode. Her love for gorillas and her hatred of poachers really colored her behavior. And some people think it eventually got in the way of rational management of the research center. Yeah, again, can't see the forest or the trees. Right. You're so wrapped up in these things, which, I mean, are a big deal. But, sure. But you, you're so wrapped up in it, you, you can't do anything else. Right. Besides obsess about this one component. Yes. And in along that vein, the unfortunate thing is, despite having a good heart and really just wanting to help these innocent animals, rumors started to circulate that Diane's conflict with the poachers grew to such proportions that it overshadowed her conservation efforts and while the numbers of her enemies rose, gorilla numbers continued to decline. Well, which must have just been infuriating to her. Yes. And, you know, hopeless feeling. Yeah. Hopeless feeling. On New Year's Eve 1977, things came to a head. Among all of the gorillas she habituated, Diane had a favorite. His name was Digit. She named him that because he had a deformed finger. She'd watched him grow up. And for whatever reason, she just felt a special bond with him. I actually believe he was one of the first gorillas that she kind of bonded with. Yeah. As a fellow animal lover, I totally get this, having a favorite. Yeah. I mean, we have cats and I, I have yes. a favorite. You know, he's just that one that yes. we bonded. On this New Year's Eve in 1977, when Digit was only 12 years old, poachers brutally killed him as he tried to defend his family. Oh. He was found shortly after he was killed decapitated with his hands cut off and they were reportedly sold for about $20. Ugh, it's just, oh, I mean, salt in the wound, right? Mm, right. I mean, I, I don't know why like that $20 thing yeah. makes it so much worse. Yeah, it does. But it makes it so much worse. And for ashtrays? Yeah. 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 Diane had his body brought back to camp where he was buried and Fossey wrote in a 1981 article in National Geographic, quote, the mutilated body, head and hands hacked off for grisly trophies, lay limp in the brush like a bloody sack. For me, this killing was probably the saddest event in all of my years of sharing the daily lives of Mountain Gorilla, end quote. I imagine it would be. It was this scene depicted on a hotel room TV screen sometime in the late 80s or early 90s <laughs> that brings me to tears even now. Yeah. Yeah, I can see it. I don't mean to laugh, but 
I'm just picturing your poor, your poor sweet face staring at this, this. And your parents, have so, they seen the movie before? Oh, no, no. My parents were very careful about, like, what we watched. Yeah. And so they just saw Sigourney Weaver, who was, like, you know, one of the biggest stars of all time. And these adorable baby gorillas. They're I mean, like, oh, like, what a perfect movie for my children to watch before they go to bed. They would have never have allowed us to watch this because they would have known, like, it would, uh, we would have been really upset. I yeah, mean, of course. We would have never been exposed to this. I don't remember their reaction. I'm sure it was to quick turn it off, but, but <laughs> the damage was done. <laughs> the groundwork had already been laid. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Diane was so disturbed over the murder of Digit, as was I. Yes. That the already private and reclusive Diane began spending even more of her time in her own cabin drinking and smoking until she spiraled into a deep depression. And she's already got emphysema. I know. Not good. Not good. Worsening matters only six months after Digit's death, his family was attacked once again. And this time two other gorillas were killed while their infant was injured by a bullet wound and later died due to his injuries. Oh, the male gorilla. Yes. The male gorilla killed was Uncle Bert the family's dominant silverback. Mm. Gorilla families rely heavily on their leaders and the death of this dominant silverback was really destructive to Digit's family. The baby gorilla, Quelly, was buried between his mother and father right next to Digit. And all three of these adult gorillas died in an effort to save his life. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm getting emotional. All three of these adult gorillas died to save that baby yeah okay (laughs) we've already had a pretty emotional morning here folks so this is just (laughs) i know it's silly because we're crying over animals but i mean again it's injustice it it feels so unjust by this point diane's breathing fire and rightly so right yeah but she's mad at everyone yeah and her anger may have become a little displaced she went as far as suspecting the local government may have had something to do with the deaths of the gorillas she thought maybe they had wanted a dramatic story for the world to respond to so she suspicioned that authorities had been instructed to kill the gorillas to gain sympathy and funding from conservationalists and while digit's death did increase funding the majority of the money went to other conservation efforts instead of ending poaching which further upset diane Mm. In the early 1960s, there were about 475 individual Virunga Mountain gorillas, but those numbers were dropping. And by the early 1980s, that number was 254 gorillas and continuing to drop. So Diane at this point was angry at the world. She was literally in the thick of it, you know, in these forests with these animals while conservationists were spending money on education. But Diane was not seeing the changes she wanted where it, it mattered, in her opinion, which is right there in the forest in these gorilla families. So she grew to be mistrusting towards all Rwandans. And it was said that she could not see that these people who were definitely part of the problem could ever be capable of being part of the solution. Yeah, I get where she's coming from because, again, she has a very personal relationship with these specific gorillas. Education is really the way to stop 
poaching because then you start finding out other opportunities for the poachers, other ways to stop the poachers. I know in some situations, they've even hired poachers to become caretakers. Correct. And then now they can provide for their families. And, you know, so it's trying to find other alternate solutions. Yes. But I get it because she's right there burying their bodies. Right. A very visceral feeling. I mean, you're there. Right. For as many friends as she'd made in the animals of Africa, she'd made enemies in the humans. Tough. Really tough. The day after Christmas in 1985, Ian Redmond came to see Diane in her cabin. And upon entering, he found her body laying face up near her bed. She'd been hacked to death with a machete. Mm. Just a few feet away was a hole that had been cut into the side of the cabin, presumably so that her murderer could enter. The attack had happened very recently as Ian noticed bloodstains still dripping onto the floor. Diane's research assistant, Wayne Richard McGuire, was summoned to the scene. And as he went to check her vital signs, he noticed that her face had been split with what appeared to be one machete blow. Yikes. Brutal. Brutal. Her cabin had been ransacked. There was broken glass and overturned furniture throughout, but it did not appear that any valuables had been taken, including her passport and thousands of dollars in U.S. bills and traveler's checks. The handgun that Diane slept with and kept near her at all times was laying on the floor. Wayne McGuire would later say that he believed that Diane's murder investigation was poorly handled. He said there was absolutely no crime scene approach. People were coming and going, tromping around, damaging any kind of footprints or evidence that may have been left behind by the murderer. So who would have wanted Diane Fossey dead? (laughs) A wide range of suspects we have here. (laughs) Take your pick. As we've discussed, Diane's list of enemies was long. But of course, my first thought and yours, too, when I mentioned, hey, I'm covering Diane Fossey, you were like, well, the poachers killed her. Well, yeah, right. because that seems like the obvious answer, right? right? It's the folks she was out to destroy the most got her first, right? It seems so. However, her fellow researchers at the center say that that just would not have been possible because poachers, again, were just local hunters who had lived this way for decades. They were just doing what they'd been taught to do. Any earnings they ever received were used to provide for their families. They knew what they were doing was illegal and that many people were on a mission to stop them. So they would not put themselves at risk. And they knew that they needed to stay out of sight. The poachers never dared to enter the camp before. Like that was just a no-go zone. They knew they were in great danger there. They were a rural people with limited means, and they did not have familiarity of the layout of the camp. Whoever did this dug a hole into the side of her little cabin and killed her was in and out. They knew exactly where they were going. Okay. It just didn't Was it a complicated settlement? I mean, the camp? No, not really. But, you know, it wasn't just like a sleepy thing where anybody could just like walk on. There were people. Okay, they actually had some guards of some kind. Yeah, it was a dangerous area. Yeah. Even just animals alone, like maybe not gorillas, but you're in the jungle. That's true. Yeah. So everybody was always a little on guard. Yeah. Some people believe that gold smugglers may have killed Diane. So this research center lies near Rwanda's borders with the Democratic Republic of of Congo and Uganda, both areas that have had lots of unrest. And this route was often traveled by gold smugglers. 
There are reports that Diane may have had some information, and I don't know what that was, but some information from literally living here for all these years that the smugglers would not have wanted her to have, and that could have made her a target. So that's one of the theories about what may have happened to her. Believe it or not, Diane's entire staff was ultimately arrested in connection with her murder. And this included a local Rwandan man named Emmanuel Rilakana, who was Diane's former tracker, who had been fired when he allegedly attempted to kill Fosse before with a machete. What? Well, that that's concerning. Now, again, Diane was hard to live with, hard to work with, hard to be around. Hot-tempered woman. She kept him in employment. So, like, did he actually try to kill her? Or was it just hot-headed argument going back and forth right. between the two? Right. But worth thinking about. Sure. All of her staff was eventually released from prison, except for Relicana, who was found having hung himself in prison. Oh. So, interesting. Oh. Was found hung like a scapegoat? <laughs> or found hung like he, like he was guilty? The research I found was hung himself. So to me, that re- you points know, more towards maybe guilty. Things can be interpreted a lot that of is ways. True. That is true. Very good question. Sus. <laughs> that is. I'll give you that. Rwandan courts later tried Wayne McGuire in absentia. And that means that he was not present for the trial. Right. And he was tried for Diane's murder. Wayne was the man who came into her cabin soon yeah. after her death. He was a graduate student who'd come to the research center to develop his thesis in the parental behavior of male gorillas. McGuire fled Karasoki right before his trial after being told by the U.S. government that if he stayed, he would be arrested. His trial for the murder of Diane Fossey lasted 40 minutes. He was convicted and sentenced to death by shooting. What the heck? The alleged motive was that McGuire had murdered Diane to steal the manuscript of the sequel to her 1983 book, Gorillas in the Midst, upon which the movie I watched and this episode was based. And just a little side note here, Diane's life was also dramatized in a 2006 opera program that was named after her local nickname. Oh. Woman who lives alone in the mountains. Okay. just, I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. Also, I don't think this guy killed her. You don't think? That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't think so either. And during his trial, prosecutors alleged that McGuire was unhappy with his own field research and so was willing to steal Diane's in order to complete his work. Here's the evidence they provided. The government said that a laboratory analysis of hair found clenched in Diane's hand at the time of her death belonged to a white person. And McGuire was the only other white person at the research center that night. <laughs> Smoking gun if I ever heard one. Case closed. Case closed. Moving on. A more plausible explanation for him being the killer would just be that she's ruining all the research because of her insane ramblings. You know, I mean, sure. I'm saying that could be his interpretation. Right. Like you're going to ruin my research because you can't keep your trap shut right. about all this other stuff. I mean, that's more believable to me than he went to go steal her manuscript right. and then and then killed her with a machete. It seems extreme. Right. It does seem extreme. And yeah, it does seem extreme. And you're right. If he is as, as passionate about these animals as she was, if he's looking at her as doing as much harm as, say, the poachers, then I can see that being a better Which he could motive. have. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. she was going down that path, unfortunately. Right. And again, I think 
well-meaning. Sure. Things got sideways in her mind. But I can see him saying, I'm here to do research. And whether he cared about them as intimately as she did versus cared about his research, which is his life. uh, I don't know. That seems unlikely to me. Yeah, it is strange. But the motive that they they, they provided. Exactly. But after 40 minutes, and you know, every piece of evidence was covered in that 40-minute trial. I mean, well, if 40 it, minutes. If it was, they didn't have much evidence. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I don't know that they did. The crime scene was not <sighs> taken care of. Right. McGuire decided to return to the United States in July of 1987. And again, he's been convicted of murder. But there's no extradition treaty between the U.S. and Rwanda. So McGuire, of course, never returned to Rwanda, which is probably wise, if you've been sentenced okay, to death so by he, shooting. He was sentenced to death and then was still allowed to leave the country? No, he left before. Remember, he got a... He got oh, like right, a in absentia. Up. He was yeah. found guilty in absentia. And, yeah. And, and this is all screwed up. Yeah. For me, it's, it's kind of like... It was just convenient. Yeah. It's their way of saying, okay, case solved. Moving on. It was the way of making it go away by like having, okay, yeah. we have a guilty party. Yeah. But to me, it was the way of making it go away. I don't wow. think he did it either. Wow. Now, when he returned to the U.S., he gave a brief statement at a news conference saying that Diane had been both his friend and his mentor. And he called her death tragic and the charges outrageous. And from that point on, McGuire really wasn't seen in the public eye. Over the years, he did accept a job with the Health and Human Services Division of the state of Nebraska, but the job offer was revoked upon discovery of his relation to the Diane Fossey case. So according to this guy's really guilty, this really just jacked him. It did. Well, either way, it kind of did. That's what I'm saying. It it did in all, I mean, in all forms. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. According to the Rwandan government, Stephanie, this case has been solved. It's solved. Not likely. Right. Like I and so many others, we're really not satisfied with this. And in the case, I think, of most people's minds, it's a mystery still. Sure. Many people close to Diane actually said they were surprised that she wasn't killed earlier, given the many enemies she made over the years and the fact that this was a very violent part of the world. What a horrible thing to say, though. I'm surprised you weren't taken out earlier. Well, and I I think that sounds really harsh, but I think what they were meaning was given where she was. Again, it was kind of a lawless. A white American woman. Yeah, I get it. Making enemies, living in a place where you can just go hack somebody up with a machete and walk out. Yeah. In life, Diane's big fear was a world with no mountain gorillas left in it. But a year after her death, a consensus was done that revealed that mountain gorilla numbers were slowly but steadily increasing. Today, mountain gorillas are believed to be one of the few apes whose numbers are not in decline. Wow. They are still critically endangered, but numbers are trending upwards. In November 2015, an annual naming ceremony celebrated the birth of 24 new baby mountain gorillas. And in 2018, a census revealed a total count for the subspecies to 1,069 gorillas. I'm not crying. You're crying. I know. I'm literally having to hold back tears here. Don't cry. Don't cry. It's going to happen. Hold on. Wait for my last line. No, I'm already. They're already coming. My closing line. It's just grab a tissue right now. She's waiting for her dramatic moment. That's right. Let's have it. First, the last entry in Diane Fossey's diary read, when you realize the value of all life, you dwell less on what is past 
and concentrate more on the preservation of the future. Fosse was buried in the Virunga Mountains, where she spent 18 years of her life. Are you ready? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> Next to her. No. No, I can't. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Next to her lies beloved Digit. Oh, and scene. And we're all in tears. <laughs> That's really beautiful. Yeah, it's really beautiful. So I know that was a bit of an interesting case for us here at the Dark Oak, but it is a mystery. And Oh, it's a fantastic mystery. Yeah. And I hope we can shed some light on her efforts. Yeah. And keep in mind, these animals are, are not out of danger. Yeah. And there are things we can do. There are things we can do to help. Well, Cynthia, in your research, did you find any particular funds or research websites or anything that if somebody else is interested, they could get more information? Actually, yes. Believe it or not, all these years later, there is still a Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. Oh, neat. Yes. Okay. And Ellen DeGeneres' campus okay. is part of... Of that organization. It's the Ellen DeGeneres campus. Oh, I didn't realize they were related. That's cool. Of the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. So go check that out. You can go to gorillafund.org. Yeah. You can look up Ellen DeGeneres campus of the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. Definitely check out her book, Gorillas in the Midst. It's hard. It's a hard read. It has the actual photos of of Digit after he had been killed and stuff like that. So, you know, you got to be prepared for that. But it's it's fascinating. It's really fascinating to see everything. everything I know I see um, because, of course, I'm on the mailing list for the the World Wildlife Federation. Mm. And they always have some gorillas featured in there. I know that's kind of one of their top animals that they support. And... Um, I know that's a really good one to look into, too, if you wanted to provide a donation or something for their conservation efforts. That's awesome. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, good case. Thank you. Well, you know what? For me, the whole thing is kind of summed up in one, in just in one idea. One person really can make a difference. If you want to go check out some guerrilla organizations, we totally support that. We also have a nonprofit linked with the Brown family. Yes. So the Domestic Violence Center Safe Space, which is actually in Port St. Lucie County, which is the county where the Brown family lived. And then we have the the non-for-profit that we covered in the Casey Hathaway case, which is a North Carolina wildlife conservation fund that helps to link people, citizens and visitors to North Carolina with native wildlife in a positive way, Um, which, you know, since the bears helped save Casey Hathaway, we're happy to support the bears. Absolutely. (laughs) Support the bears, support the gorillas, support Sasquatch. Yes. (laughs) You know, that's always my shtick. Always. I love it. Support support those big feats. (laughs) Which, if you think about it, is very closely related to gorillas. Absolutely. (laughs) Guys, if you want to vote for either of those not-for-profit organizations through our Branch of Hope Fund, head over to our webpage or you can head to our Facebook page. Drop us a note. Let us know which one of those organizations you choose uh, for your portion of donations to go to. And also, if you love this episode, love us or love the Branch of Hope, tell somebody. Guys, we need a few more listeners. Don't we, Cynthia? We do. It's time. We love our listeners. You guys are awesome. You guys are true blue. I love it when they have the little analytics on people that listen to our episodes. 
As much as I like to see the little ticker go up for new listeners, I love that we have so many returning listeners. And, you know, we kind of forgot, guys, we've been a little busy. Like, we're both moms working hard. We hit 10,000 downloads, like, way super fast for a new startup podcast. And we are already working towards, I don't know, we may be... I think it's 13,000 now. Yeah, which is pretty amazing for a startup We launched in August. Right. I mean, you guys are obviously doing a great job listening and sharing us and and please keep doing it we can do advertising you know we have a youtube channel and of course our videos get shared on other mystery podcast channels and things but really word of mouth you guys know how these podcasts work word of mouth is the best way to let people know about what you like because there are so many other great podcasts out there to listen to we would just like to have our own little piece of the pie just a tiny little a tiny little wedge (laughs) <laughs> and and that's part of why we started the Branch of Hope Fund is because we know there are so many other amazing podcasts out there and we wanted to do something a little different and we yeah. wanted to give back, yeah. which is why we have this Branch of Hope Fund where we can literally put our money where our mouth is. I love it. Yeah. And by joining our Patreon, you can accomplish that as well. Not only do you get some special features from us, you will get every month you get a live with Cynthia and I, you will get your own uh, episode. It's a full length episode once a month. And then some other uh, swag pieces, yeah. which are just fun, just fun things. But also you just kind of get to be part of the Dark Oak family and get to be part of the Branch of Hope because a portion of your Patreon fees will go directly to those organizations. And guys, our Patreon fees are not that much. Um, And so (laughs) skip your cup of coffee, become a Patreon. You're doing something good. Right. Support a small business, support local charities. It's all good. Support some working mamas. (laughs) Please. (laughs) If you want to talk to us directly, you can go ahead and email us at thedarkoakpodcast at gmail.com. We're open to your questions, your comments, anything else you want to share. Honestly, if you guys want to talk to us about other nonprofits that we can support, let us know. If you want to talk to us about other mysteries that we might be interested in, I'd love to hear about those as well. Uh, for other ways to connect, you can always hop on over to our website at thedarkoak.com. Be sure to follow us to our next episode where we talk about the 16th Street bombing. This is a hard one. Um, it's, of course, a historical hate crime. And it's going to be pretty tough to cover, but gosh, it's so vital. This is going to be one of my cases, and I plan to do a little bit of a deep dive. So you don't want to miss it. Again, it's going to be a hard one to cover, but I think it's going to be really important. It's so important. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, Shiver Seekers. We really think you rock. (laughs) Ooh, ooh, uh, uh. (laughs) Bye, guys. That was a chimp, a monk, monkey. Uh, you know, that was just natural. <laughs> just, just doing I'm my just habituating. I'm, I'm habituating. Just habituating. <laughs> Bye, guys. Have a Bye. great day. This episode of The Dark Oak was created, researched, written, recorded, hosted, edited, published, and marketed by Cynthia and Stephanie of Just Us Gals Productions and made possible by you our shiver-seeking listener. Special thanks goes to Justice Himes for our incredible artwork and Ryan Crete for our amazing music.